Greetings, podcast world. I am here in my closet studio in Durban, South Africa, once again, to talk about the strange wanderings of my mind. For quite a long time now, I've been confused by the Christian nationalism that I see here in South Africa and even more so in the United States. I would define Christian nationalism as a willingness to do whatever it takes to instill a Christian political agenda into one's country. If we can just make our country more Christian, then God will bless us. Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. Today, I want to do something a little different than I've done before, at least on this podcast. I want to talk about a particular story in the Bible. It's found in the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. If you've listened to this podcast, you know I am not a literalist in terms of believing that everything that's in the Bible is literal. Nor am I a proponent of the inerrancy of the Bible. I think there are plenty of mistakes and contradictions, especially in the area of history and science. I don't think the Bible is the center of the Christian faith. I think the Trinity is Father, Son, and Spirit. God is the center of our faith. I'm okay if you question miracles like turning water into wine or whether a man got swallowed by a big fish and then lived. But with all that said, I love the scriptures. And I think there is much that we can learn. There's so much truth that we can apply to our lives. So let's get into the story. It takes place somewhere around 800 years before Jesus. So that's like about 150 years after King David ruled in Israel. By this time, the nation of Israel had split into two. The southern kingdom was called Judah, but the story takes place in the northern kingdom of Israel where Elisha was a prophet. The nation of Armon, or what is now Syria, was right next door to Israel and was a real problem for the Israelites. Armon's armies would send out these raiding parties into small villages and would take the Israelites as their slaves. The commander of that army was a guy by the name of Naaman. He was super popular and very well-liked by the king of Arman, but he had leprosy. He had a servant who was an Israelite slave from one of its raids, and she told him that there was this prophet in Israel that could heal him. Let me read it to you from 2 Kings chapter 5, starting at verse 4. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Armon told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying as gifts 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, With this letter, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. 
When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, Am I God that I can give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to heal someone with leprosy? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent a message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. I love imagining this moment. I picture Elisha's home as rather humble, nothing extravagant or over the top, and up rolls the empire. The commander of all the armies of Armand, horses, chariots, heavily armed, trained soldiers, because that's what empires do. They love to show off their power and their might and authority. I can imagine them as they're coming up through the neighborhood, people looking out their windows but afraid to actually venture out, but in absolute awe of the power and might of the empire. Okay, maybe that's a little bit over the top. My imagination is like that, but you get the picture. Horses and chariots and soldiers would have certainly been out of place. They come up to Elisha's home, and what does he do? He sends out a messenger, a servant, to speak to Commander Naaman. He doesn't even go himself. The messenger tells him to go to the Jordan River and wash seven times. Between the lines of this story, we see a stark comparison between the empire and the kingdom of God. The empire with its machine of war and the prophet who won't bow down to their arrogance or succumb to the temptation of being seen with the right people. Elisha sends a servant, rather, to speak to him. The empires of this world and the kingdom of God are always at odds. The empire only looks out for itself while the kingdom of God looks out for the oppressed and the forgotten. The empire is about power and wealth and domination. The kingdom of God is about self-sacrificing and co-suffering. Remember back when Israel asked God for a king? They wanted to create an empire like the other nations have. God said, you don't want a king. Kings are bad. Kings are only out for themselves. Kings create empires. The people said, no, we want a king. And God said, trust me, you don't want a king. But the people persisted. And they got their king and their empire, which was a problem from day one. God speaks to Moses from a burning bush and tells him, I want you to stand up to the empire. Tell Pharaoh that you want to free the 7 million Jews that are their slaves. You know, the ones that prop up the economy of the entire empire. No wonder Moses tried to get out of it. 
You don't just walk into the empire and tell them that you're going to destroy their economy. Jesus' ministry was very much in the face of the empire, which is why the Romans were willing to crucify him. When Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is at hand, which he said over and over, it would have been interpreted as the kingdom of God will overthrow the empire and set itself up as the ones in charge. Empires don't like people saying things like that. When Jesus was arrested, he was taken before Pilate. And Pilate asked him directly, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate wants to know how much of a threat this guy really is to the empire. Jesus answers him by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. For many years, I thought Jesus was talking about heaven. His kingdom would come in the sweet by and by, and he wasn't too interested in the kingdoms of this world. But in light of Jesus' entire ministry, now I'm not so sure that's what he was talking about. I think what Jesus meant was, the way the empire does kingdom is not the way my kingdom will work. My kingdom is not of this world. After all, didn't Jesus pray to his father, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? The message was the empires of this earth will eventually be overthrown and my kingdom, this new order of society, will reign forever. Cue the hallelujah chorus. They hung Jesus on a cross and the sign read, King of the Jews. It too was a political statement from the empire trying to claim that the empire was greater than the kingdom of God. They were declaring victory, mission accomplished. They were wrong. Even the early church was in the face of the empire. The statement, Jesus is Lord, was a political statement. See, all of the subjects of Rome were required to regularly repeat the phrase, Caesar is Lord. But the Christians would say, no, 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 no. Jesus is Lord. That's what got them fed to the lions. It wasn't because of their religion. Rome could care less about their religion. There were thousands of religions in Rome. It was because they stood in the face of the empire. So between the lines of the story between Naaman and Elisha, there is this amazing contrast between the empire and the kingdom of God. The empire loves military parades. They love to show off power. The kingdom of God gives away power. The empire exists through control and dominance. The kingdom exists through love and acceptance. The empire is all about us and them. The kingdom of God is an acceptance of all. The empire is out to destroy and control its enemies. The kingdom of God is about loving its enemies. The empire says, our people come first. The kingdom of God says, first take care of the foreigner and the widow and the orphan. 
The empire seeks to make itself great. The kingdom of God seeks to make others great. The empire leads by demanding submission and loyalty. The kingdom leads by serving. So, back to the story. I'm going to come back to the empire, but I want to sidetrack for just a minute here. Naaman was deeply offended by the fact that Elisha didn't come out to greet him. I mean, who is this arrogant prophet that he would not even come out to speak to me? Doesn't he know who I am? I've come all the way with all these people only to be told by a servant to go wash in some dirty river. I've got my publicist and photographers with me. There's even a crew from TBN to film this whole thing. But I'm told to go wash in some dirty river. So he packs up his TV crew and he heads for home. But on the way, one of the servants of Naaman says, Sir, what do you have to lose? The river's close. Why not just go give it a try? So Naaman does. He gets to the river And he's probably thinking he's crazy, but he walks into the river. He dunks himself down one time, two times. This is so stupid. Three times. What am I doing? Four times, five times. I'm going to look like such a fool when this doesn't work. Six times, seven times. And lo and behold, he comes out completely healed, skin as smooth as a baby's butt. Needless to say, he was elated. So he goes back to Elisha's house to say thank you and to pay him. See, the empire doesn't understand generosity. Everything is quid pro quo. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. But this time, Naaman's attitude is entirely different. And so... Elisha comes out to greet him, but Elisha refused to take any payment from Naaman. But then there's this fascinating exchange starting at verse 17. Let me read it to you. Naaman said, from now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord, which is Yahweh. However, may the Lord pardon me this one thing. When my master, the king, goes into the temple of the god of Ramon to worship there and leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow too. Go in peace, Elisha said. Ramon was the god of the Armenians, also known as Baal. This request goes against the law of Moses, against the first of the Ten Commandments, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. You can't go into the temple of Ramon and bow down to Baal. Not if you are saying you want to worship Yahweh. It's just out of the question. But Elisha's response is, go in peace. This opens a whole can of worms for evangelicalism because it appears that worship has nothing to do with being in the right place or using the right words or even calling God by the right name. 
It appears that one can worship God, one can worship Yahweh, even when seeming to worship Baal. So much of our faith, certainly in modern times, is trying to define what worship looks like. We have debated what kind of music we should use, if we should use any at all. We've argued over instrumentation. Are drums okay? I miss the organ. That electric guitar is terrible. But more than anything, we have fought about how loud it should be or shouldn't be. We've debated if Catholics can actually be Christians. Or what about the Greek Orthodox with all their robes and long beards? And by the way, did you know that they pray to Mary? And not only that, they pray for the dead. Certainly, they aren't worshipers of God. Or what about the Unitarian Church or the Mormons? And can I only use the names of God that I find in the Bible, or are there others? Do other cultures have different names for God, but at the end of the day, we're all actually worshiping the same God? Could it be that our idea of the kingdom of God is way too small, way too limited? Might God be much bigger than we ever imagined? So let's imagine this story from a more modern setting. A person from another culture or another religion gets sick, right? And let's say they're from Iran and they're Muslim. So they come to a Christian teacher because they have heard that these Christians can actually heal them. And so it happens. They're healed. Then this Muslim says, okay, I believe in your God, but I have to go back to Iran and worship Allah. I hope that's okay. What would our response be? At the very best, we would probably say, no, you, you have to learn about Jesus. You have to read your Bible every day so you can appropriate the correct belief system. You can't, we, we can't just leave it like this. Elisha does none of that. See how radical this story is? He just says, go in peace. I mean, how crazy is that? Okay, before I wrap this up, let me tread into some deep waters very carefully. But then who likes to stay in the shallow end of the pool, right? I'm afraid that too often the Christian church wants to be the empire. We want to decide who's in and who's out based on our particular belief system. If you believe the right stuff, you're in. But if you pray to Mary... Or if you don't believe in hell, then you are out. Just ask Rob Bell about that. There's a word for this. It's called nationalism. Nationalism is the idea that my country is right to the exclusion of everybody else. It's not the same thing as patriotism. Patriotism is when I'm proud of my country. And I support my country and I even defend my country. That's a good thing. But nationalism is going well beyond that. Way too often, I see Christians who, in my opinion, have crossed the line 
into nationalism. They defend the empire at all costs. But as I've been thinking about it, I wonder if there is something behind that. An idea or a belief that drives that action. I'm afraid that we think the way we usher in the kingdom of God is through the empire. That's what Jesus' disciples thought. They thought all this talk of the kingdom of God will result in Jesus overthrowing Rome and taking over the empire. Then they could be the empire, just like in the time of David. If we can just take over the empire, then we will see the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. If we can elect Christian politicians and Christian judges, then we can control the empire and we can be the empire and then the kingdom of God will be here. Of course, we never use language like that, but in many ways, I think that's what we are saying. I've seen it in America, I've seen it here in South Africa, and I'm sure it's true in many other countries. We decide the political candidate or the party we're going to vote for based on a few issues that define if those candidates or parties are going to promote our conservative Christian values. The big litmus test these days is abortion. Then below that are things like Second Amendment rights in America or prayer in schools or a host of other things we have decided are are Christian values. I'm not saying that having a political view on any of those matters is bad. I think you should have a view, and I think you should exercise your democratic right to vote. But this is not how we usher in the kingdom of God. The empire, no matter how many Christian values they embrace, is always opposed to the kingdom of God. I I just got to say that again, because this is so important. The empire, no matter how many Christian values they embrace, is always opposed to the kingdom of God. When the Christians control the empire, it's still the empire. And it is still just as far from the kingdom of God as it was before. Whether the empire allows or doesn't allow abortion or prayer in schools, or whether it promotes capitalism over socialism, does not mean that it is the kingdom of God. It is just a Christian empire. So let's be good citizens of the empires that we live in. Let's exercise our right to vote, exercise our free speech if we have it. Let's be salt and light every chance we get, but let's not confuse the empire with the kingdom of God. So, I'll calm down now, but I hope that gives you something to chew on as you watch the news or read the newspaper this week. I hope it haunts you like it haunts me. If it does, drop me a note. I'd love to hear what you think. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or on my webpage at skipcollins.com. And if you haven't been to my Patreon page, please check it out. I'm currently working on some special content that will be available only to our Patreon community. You only have to give a dollar a month and you can be a part of that community. Patreon.com forward slash skipcollins. Watch this space. 
But until next time, stay safe. Shalom. Shalom.